With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Politics is no longer the expression of big structural forces in the world. Everything that is personal is now seen as political, and everything that is political is now seen as a reflection of the personal. So we have walked from the Marxist ideal of politics as being the force of great structural powers in the world that are vying for each other, all the way down to... Oh, Debbie in accounting said my name in a weird way, and that, that's, that's offensive to me. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Freddie DeBurr. Freddie, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Freddie, let's get straight into your new book, which is an excellent read. I highly recommend it. It's called How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. It's one of those books where the headline kind of tells you everything you need to know it makes you want to read more i want to i guess i want to kick off with a fairly broad question and i guess the question is is what are you talking about what are you talking about when you say a term like social justice or i guess it, when one uses a term like woke uh, you wrote a really interesting piece on your substack a few months ago um the headline was something like of course you know what woke means because we've all had that experience where you're talking about these new social movements and people will kind of slightly falsely say, what are you talking about? So let's start off with that. When you talk about social justice, the social justice movement, identitarians, the woke, whatever term we're using, what do you have in mind? For this book specifically, I'm talking really about uh, the social movements that uh, sort of came to fruition in the 2010s in the United States um, and uh, their sort of related ideological apparatus in the media and academia, but also how they were implemented in the world via nonprofits and uh, activist groups. Um, I really very specifically wanted to avoid writing a book broadly about, you know, quote unquote woke. Um, and in fact, I told the publisher, I told Simon and Schuster, um, you know, one of my non-negotiable, uh, demands at the beginning of the process was that the word woke not appear anywhere on the cover. And, um, it only shows up three times in the book. Uh, and it's always talking about someone else's sort of conceptualization of these things. Uh, but obviously there is overlap between what people talk about when they say the word woke and, and what I'm talking about in the book. And I think I think what I'm really talking about is an evolution in social liberalism and American social liberalism that really gets going in the second Obama administration uh, and which is a uh, fundamentally a matter of porting uh, academic concepts from sort of elite humanities departments into the everyday vocabulary, political vocabulary of rank and file American liberals uh, and how that vocabulary and those values very quickly sort of colonized American institutions. And yes, academia, obviously, um, a very large portion of the media, uh, but also um, uh, most nonprofit organizations that are not explicitly conservative are sort of caught up in this, this language and this ideology. Um, now, many businesses, including things like businesses in the defense industry, you know, weapons manufacturers, uh, uh, finance-related uh, uh, companies like Goldman Sachs, they uh, they too have sort of adopted this sort of thing. So, where you go to Raytheon, which you know makes things that kill people and you go to their website and you see a lot of this terminology. Um, if I had to define sort of the, the chief sort of operating principle uh, in this political evolution, it's the concept that the personal is political taken to being the core of all politics. It is the expansion of the notion that the personal is political to the extent which everything that is personal is now seen as political and everything that is political is now seen as a reflection of the personal uh, and which created this condition in which not having the right politics was no longer seen as being something that was an aspect of someone. 
it was seen as being their identity. It was being seen as being core to them. And that contributed to this state of um, extreme emotionalism, to the constancy of canceling, to the, the sense that the stakes were incredibly high if you got something wrong, all of which built to a head in 2020. Um, where we had the George Floyd protests, but we also had the continuing uh, the, the Me Too movement. We had the, a presidential campaign going on that sort of reflected the left word shift in some ways with the Democratic Party. And then nothing really happened. And uh, I was shocked by the how quickly people sort of moved on from um, this being like everything to being nothing. And I wanted to write a book about it. That's a very useful way to kick off. And I particularly... Uh, like and agree with your comments on the personal is political and the, the expansion of that idea and the, and the extraordinary impact that the expansion of that idea has had on so-called left politics and uh, public culture more broadly. And I want to come back to that later. Uh, I want to ask you a few things about identity politics specifically, but just sticking for the time being, before we dig down, sticking with the question of what are you talking about in this book and, and what is your focus in the book in this book one of the things i really liked about the book um is that it is a left-wing critique of um some of the uh, contemporary manifestations of identity politics and uh, wokeness or whatever the hell we're supposed to call it um we're used to seeing right-wing critiques of this of course uh, there's a growing number of liberal critiques um from um kind of left-leaning liberal academics. Yours comes at it from a pretty full-throated Marxist perspective, and uh, there's even a chapter on why class is um, the most important thing. I want to ask you about that as well. So I appreciate it, appreciated it from that perspective, but one thing that you will be aware of, of course, is that a lot of the movements that you're talking about, uh, including the ones that have become fairly problematic in terms of cancellation and that kind of um, hysterical self-preservation of one's identity, all those kinds of issues, they conceive of themselves as left-wing. And in fact, they often conceive of themselves as very left-wing. And you will sometimes go on a, a very strange kind of protest or demonstration at which there are 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds with pink hair, probably have never done a day's work in their lives, may not have even really met many working class people, and they will be holding up banners that describe themselves as Marxists, as Trotskyists, and so on. So uh, in terms of what we're talking about uh, in this discussion, how, how do you distinguish your Marxism, your being a person off the left, with these kinds of new movements that, that you're talking about and writing about? Well, I think you have to start with um, the fact that there is a, an evolution from people who um, many of the sort of progenitors of this uh, were self-identified Marxists or former Marxists. But the sort of post-structuralist turn in left politics uh, in the latter half of the 20th century is really important. Um, for a variety of reasons, uh, primarily in France, but other places, you have the rise of a sort of uh, academic quasi-political school of thought that's associated with people like Michel Foucault, Foucault and Jacques Derrida, etc., um, that is uh, sort of ostensibly of the left and that um, stems from sort of the continental philosophical traditions that have informed Marxism for a long time, um, but which are a very deliberate sort of turn away from Marxism. Um, uh, in part, this is due to Marxism's failures in uh, the Soviet Union and in other places. Um, it's also just due to the fact that, uh, you know, academia has a ha sort of habit of producing successive generations in order for people to have something to repudiate from the past, you know? So, um, you know, Foucault, is a, for example, has a very complicated legacy, but he was more or less explicitly an anti-Marxist um, because he, you know, believed in the critique of these grand narratives um, or meta-narratives, which are sort of like things like the Marxist tradition which says that, you know, this is a holistic conception of human life and human affairs. And he's critical of that sort of idea and has very complicated ideas about power. But that is the sort of tradition from which modern sort of cultural studies grows out of. It's from that tradition that gender studies grows out of, like women's studies. It's from there that um, uh, has had a great deal of influence on, uh, on African-American studies. And so the, the version of leftism that we're getting I think is authentically left wing. I'm not yeah, I'm not particularly interested in calling these people crypto reactionaries or anything like that. Um, but it's just a version that's not my version. And I think it's a, 
it's, I think it's a version that is, uh, has been demonstrated to be a failure. Um, you know, the problem with having all of these figures who, you know, question the sort of underpinnings of reality and the degree to which we can know anything and who, you know, like, again, Foucault dramatically complicated the idea of power, whereas power was once something that people felt pretty you know, confident that they could understand, um, is that it leads to a kind of stasis, a kind of paralysis, really. Um, it's, it's, you know, long been a, uh, a critique of, some would say a caricature of, the sort of French post-structuralist uh, position that it leads you to uh, a state where you just can't do anything because you, you, you've so undermined the, the notion of, of truth and of knowledge, etc. Whether or not that's a fair critique it is certainly the case that um, that tradition that I'm talking about led to this inward turn, right, to where politics is no longer the expression of big structural forces in the world. Politics is about your individual orientation towards oppression and is a matter of personal virtue. Um, and many of the uh, fads of the past you know, decade and a half, political fads, fit very nicely into that. Uh, framework. So, for example, the concept of microaggressions, right? So microaggressions are the idea that without intending offense, people from dominant identities like white people, men, the able-bodied, straight people, etc., um, will often commit offenses against people from oppressed identities uh, without really intending to, and in ways that are minor enough that the other person can't complain, but uh, still undermines them, etc. That is fundamentally, right, about the sort of individual interactions and the, the manners and mores of people who, who sort of sort of like, you know, meet someplace in the in the contested sphere, whether that's in the workplace or academia or whatever. And the point is not that, like that stuff doesn't matter at all, but rather that it's just entirely distinct from what was once taken to be the, the field where politics was contested. So we have walked from the Marxist ideal of politics as being the force of you know great structural powers in the world that are vying for each other and which have sort of inherent and uh, and intrinsic antagonisms with each other and that the the movement of these forces creates new historical eras all the way down to oh Debbie in accounting said my name in a weird way and that that's that's offensive to me so. Um, are they, you know, left wing? I'm not like interested in sort of contesting their right to use that. But I do think that like they are from a profoundly different school of politics than I am. And part of the problem with the whole sort of Bernie Sanders sort of socialist flowering that we had in recent years is um, it produced a lot of socialists who don't know what socialism is and who don't have any grounding in the, in the tradition, which has confused a lot of things. Hello, it's Tom Slater here, editor of Spikes. I just want to let you all know about our very exciting upcoming online event that we're having on Tuesday the 17th of October. Brendan O'Neill is going to be doing an extra special live recording of his podcast, The Brendan O'Neill Show, and he's going to be joined by the one and only Graham Linehan, comedy writer, gender critical warrior, and very firmly cancelled at this point. They're going to be discussing Graham's new book, a kind of memoir of his cancellation, as well as all the issues around cancel culture and gender ideology as well. Most importantly, they'll be taking audience questions, so you really don't want to miss this. This event is online, it's on Zoom, and it's exclusively for Spike supporters, members of our online donor community. So if you already are a Spike supporter, thank you very much for your support. Go to the online hub now and claim your free ticket. If you're not already a Spike supporter, now is surely the best time to sign up. For as little as £5 each month, you can claim your free ticket to this event many more events like it, as well as all kinds of other exclusive perks, including ad-free reading on Spiked, access to our comment section, and much more. So to find out more about that, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. Yeah, I, I've I've also really noticed that almost Edwardian element to this new these new movements where they are obsessed with language and how you address people and you must address them correctly uh, or else they will disappear into a, a kind of vapor of offense. There's this extreme psychic vulnerability on one hand, where if you say the th something wrong to them, they will collapse. But it also has this authoritarian edge on the other side, which is this constant threat of managerial reprimand. If you are the person who, who uses the wrong pronoun, uses the wrong phrase, says the wrong thing. Um, 
Okay, so you're you're not saying that they're not left wing, and I think it, it, you're right. It is kind of pointless to get into those discussions of who's a real leftist and who's a fake leftist. Even though I I do sometimes use the term fake left, it is a kind of dead end discussion. But one thing that is interesting about these new movements, and you write about this extensively in the book. In fact, the book is about this. Is um, how easy it has been for the capitalist class, uh, the boss class, to incorporate these movements and to incorporate their ideas. And I've always found that absolutely fascinating. I find it fascinating that you have huge corporations in the United States and in the UK who will um, very, very happily exploit the labour of working class people and then spout these incredibly right-on ideas about racial politics, gender politics, transgender politics, and so on. They will make everyone read Robin D'Angelo and they'll have gatherings at which workers are expected to uh, acknowledge their white privilege and self-flagellate for um, the privileges bestowed on them by historical accident and racial skin colour. Speak a little bit about that. You, you spend a, a big part of the book early on talking about the experience of 2020 following the, the murder of George Floyd um, and the huge explosion of anger that took place in America and elsewhere around the world over that killing. And then you talk about the inevitability of elite capture in relation to a movement like Black Lives Matter and the way in which it kind of inevitably folded into the needs of the regime the capitalist class, the people who uh, oversee society. So explain how you, th why you think that was inevitable and what, what was that process about? I think the one thing that I would point out first that I think is very interesting is um, no one takes this concept of woke capital seriously, including the woke ease. So in other words, um, it's, it would be one thing if the people who were sort of behind this shift in uh, political uh, identity and, and jargon, etc., said, yes, it's, you know, it's really a good thing that, you know, Lockheed Martin has a, a pride flag in front of its offices, right? That if they had said it's a, it's really a good thing that um, Bank of America was handing out free pens at a, a Black Lives Matter protest, but they don't think that, right? Um, uh, and certainly people like me, sort of socialist critics of this, don't think that. Conservative critics don't think that. Nobody really buys this. And yet, right, these these institutions feel that it's important to sort of um, make this kind of a show anyway, right? Um, I think that one of the things that the last 10 or 12 or 15 years really shows is simultaneously like the power and the weakness of vocabulary and symbol and of language, right? The left controls cultural spaces that are fundamentally oriented towards the transmission of ideas like academia or the think tanks, towards uh, the transmission of art like in Hollywood, the entertainment industry. Uh, the, the left creates culture. The left is, you know, a, you know, the dominant presence in every major cultural issue that you can think of or cultural in industry, that is. Um, and so it's not surprising, right, that... Um, the, the left has tended to concentrate its efforts in those spaces, right? You know, Twitter, which has switched now with the new ownership, but, it, you know, it used to be that, like, the elite conversation on Twitter, there was always a counter-conversation of conservatives or whatever, but the elite uh, uh, conversation was this very dogmatic sort of lockstep, um, this cultural liberalism. Um, that was the kind of place where the left could really shine, right? Because they, the left has a remarkable ability to set the terms of debate and to frame people in sort of certain positions within within those debates. Um, and so like when people talk about how the humanities are so useless and powerless, I look out at the world of American institutions and I say, in 15 years, right, incredibly obscure and rather extreme academic jargon went from being housed in, you know, Brown University's faculty uh, lounge to like, it's 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 in you know Chase Bank when they put out statements feel feel feels it's necessary to talk about you know to to, to have twelve letters in their LGBTQ acronym right so in one sense like the 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 speed with which these ideas took over the public marketplace 
is really remarkable. But 2020 is where those ideas went to die, right? Because it demonstrates that, look, when push comes to shove, yes, they'll they'll do the uh, the, the the sort of ritual prostration, right? Um, there were uh, something like 80,000 jobs were created in the United States that were specifically earmarked as post-George Floyd sort of jobs to increase diversity, like 80,000. Um, these you know, cor- corporations spent uh, a ton of money building out their diversity, equity, and inclusion things. Tons of money was donated. Um, there was all kinds of public attention. But when push came to shove, nothing really changed, right? And the reality is, is that even if like the Department of the Interior in the United States, right, now puts out press releases that have a um, like a land acknowledgement saying, you know, we acknowledge that this land used to be held by the so-and-so Native American tribe, you know, even if that's happening, right, it doesn't actually mean that government acts in a way that is at all like liberatory or progressive, right? And so... Uh, the elites captured all of this for, because, number one, it's always to the benefit of the elite class to create symbolic change while maintaining a status quo. Right. Um, and, you know, for all the things that happened, uh, like the sort of professional class that was in a position to to sort of say, oh, we care so much about George Floyd and we put the Black Lives Matter uh sign in our window, um, they weren't even asked to have their, their, their taxes raised, right? Like for as, for as much as the Democratic Party has had a more progressive domestic policy uh, position in the last couple of years, um, they're still not even talking about raising taxes on people who make less than $400,000 a year, right? Which leaves this class of people, let's say from like one hundred dollars to $400,000 a year, um, who's like are not being asked to sacrifice at all in this push for a more progressive future. And it just so happens, right, that the people who make in that amount of money, a huge portion of them are like the sort of the, the, the fundraising base of the United of the United States Democratic Party. Right. In other words, like the, the, the party is not sort of pushing its luck with its sort of aspirational college educated progressive class who is sort of the intellectual soldiers who fund the party and who fund the groups behind the party, but they're not asking them to raise their taxes. Right. So even that sort of thing wasn't going to happen. And like, if you are an elite, like one of the things that I don't say in the book is that this sort of elite interest in justice was insincere, right? I think that that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what I'm doing in the book. I'm not saying that all these sort of affluent white liberals, you know, college educated urbanite white liberals, that they're insincere. In fact, I think most of them are very sincere, but they're not being put into a position by the system to have to sacrifice anything. And then, I, you know, the other big thing that I would say is that, um, again, like uh, these ideas, you know, the, the center of sort of left activity has shifted from the Union Hall in the middle of the 20th century gradually to uh, the college campus, uh, the, you know, the back rooms of The New York Times to the, you know, the uh, the offices of the Ford Foundation. Just the, the sort of the intellectual and political sort of movement within the left of center in the United States has just migrated into these college educated Upward, upwardly mobile spaces. And so it's inevitable that you're just going to get outcomes that don't threaten the people in those spaces. That's very well put. I, I, I did want to ask you, you, you said that uh, you talked there about symbolic gestures, I guess, the kind of gesture politics where um, the elites, and including the capitalist class itself, can make these symbolic gestures, make symbolic changes, but it doesn't have real economic consequences for them or consequences that would call into question their domination of um, other classes in society, their domination of the workplace and so on. Um, I want to ask you, was was the post-BLM fallout just symbolic? Because one thing that struck me, and I'm saying this very much as someone outside of the US, was the extraordinary nature of BLM as, a, as almost a cultural juggernaut that went around the world. And so, for example, here in Britain, in London, um, we had BLM protests in solidarity with George Floyd. That that That's fine. That makes sense. But you had protesters here putting their hands in the air and saying, don't shoot. But of course, our police forces don't have guns. So it was like the importation of this um, American gesture, which was no doubt trickled down through social media companies and, and uh, which are owned by the, the new oligarch system and so on. 
in Belgium, um, people were rallying uh, behind the BLM banner and, and making local demands, but under that kind of American banner. Even the Aboriginal movements in Australia, which are whose problems are very, very different to those of African-Americans, um, adopted the phrase Black Lives Matter. And it did make me wonder if BLM was actually an incredibly successful export of soft American power. And almost there was an element almost of cultural colonialism, where there was this expansion through the social media system in particular, also through celebrity influence, through the political classes. We had politicians here in Britain taking the knee and so on. Um, it was this kind of extraordinary wave of correct American think that moved around the world. And it did make me wonder if this was uh, all, almost a colonization of the Western world by the American politics of identity. So, so do you think there, it's possible that there will be, even though I think you're absolutely right, that there are no immediate demands made of the capitalist class to make any kind of significant sacrifices in relation to an issue like this, that in the long term, the political cultural impacts of uh, the elite capture of something like BLM could be pretty uh, uh, severe. You know, uh there was a BLM rally uh, after George Floyd's death in Moscow to give you a sense of how, how sort of broad this became. Um, it's an it's a funny thing. So, you know, one of the things I try to always remind people is, um, that, you know, sort of different political and cultural eras can live alongside each other for a long time. So when we talk about like the 60s, the 1960s, like, you know, in the height of it, in 1967, say, or 1968, the, uh, the, the, the hippie movement in the United States and, you know, all the sort of left energy. Um, while that was happening in the United States, in most of the country, right, like the 50s were still going on, right? In other words, that like, like for most of the country, the, the conditions hadn't changed and it was this very influential fringe of people for, for whom, you know, everything had sort of changed. And it took a long time for a lot of that to sort of filter down. Um, I don't doubt, I mean, look, in the broad sense, like, yes, I think that this has been one of our most powerful cultural sort of um, exports. And, you know, the, the strength and the weakness of these politics, and this is shared by the recent sort of interest in socialism, which is now at a low ebb again, which may be healthy in the long run. But um, they sort of spread mimetically, right? They, they, they spread like memes. Um, they didn't, you know, people were not uh, reading Bell Hooks and uh, Michel Foucault and sort of spontaneously arriving at these political opinions um, and then going out and finding a community. They were seeing online that like savvy, cool people, the kind of people that they wanted to be, uh, were using this terminology, were using this vocabulary, were engaging in these behaviors. And so they started to engage in them too. Right. And this has proven to be remarkably effective as a recruiting tool. Right. Uh, again, like just like the, the huge increase in the number of people uh, self-identifying as a socialist um, really had very little to do with people understanding socialist theory and what socialism is. And it had everything to do with there was a period of time where if you wanted to be like a cool, fuckable 20 something in the United States, you had to have a certain level of socialist credentials. And so that was very powerful. But as I said, you know, memes can't make change. I think the interesting thing about Black Lives Matter specifically is, I mean, this may be too soon to call, but from the people I know in my networks, there's a real um, sense of betrayal and a gathering distaste for the, the whole Black Lives Matter brand um, among the black activist class. So, I mean, one of the things that has to be mentioned here is, um, an ungodly amount of money has been raised in the name of uh, Black Lives Matter since um, it, it's, you know, sort of its real sort of birth in 2014, the death of Michael Brown. In, in like the first uh, four or five months after George Floyd died, uh, was killed, there was something like $10 billion donated to a various affiliated BLM related organizations and charities and things like that. Nobody knows where that money went. Right. And we do know that although there is no official Black Lives Matter organization, there are several major organizations that have sort of been associated with the leadership of the movement that have collapsed into uh, accusations of fraud and mismanagement of money um, and grift, etc. And so 
in a weird way, 2020 was the ultimate flowering of Black Lives Matter, but it also felt in some ways like um, its last hurrah. I think there's an understanding that, um, you know, what happens, the way that liberals react to tragedy or to sort of political demand, the way that liberals react to those things is, uh, they, they hire people, they spend money, right? Like it's, it's very much in, in the wheelhouse of contemporary American liberals that like, when you have an issue that you say is like a big deal, right? Um, you, you address that by like giving somebody a title and appointing them the czar of, of something and you send them off to go address it, right? That's what colleges do all the time. Anytime there's a controversy at a college, um, the way that they tend to, to handle it is they buy off the campus activists by hiring somebody to be the czar of diversity or whatever. Um, and so there's just, you know, the, the, the sort of one of the most enduring uh, and serious sort of outcomes of all of this was that you had – tens of thousands of uh, people of color hired up into these diversity positions um, as sort of permanent sort of like uh, like apparatchiks of, of social justice. Um, I wouldn't even really have a problem with that as a matter of like reparations, except that the people who get those jobs are all drawn from like the top 20 percent more most upwardly mobile people of color, most, most upwardly mobile black people, right? I mean, one of the sad ironies of the 2020 moment is that, like, the killing of a member of, uh, you know, the black uh, sort of uh, bottom 20 percent, the impoverished black people, uh, people with uh, exposure to, to the criminal element, whatever, uh, the, a killing of someone who is sort of in that most vulnerable position resulted in a lot of money and jobs and scholarships like for the most, the most sort of upwardly mobile, most sort of has the highest culturally sort of cultural competency, had the most education, like the highest slice of black uh, of black America. Yeah, uh, uh, that's a really powerful point in your book where you talk about how taboo it has become to mention the fact that there exists a black professional managerial class. And you say that there are a number of reasons why it's taboo to talk about this. First, uh, which I think is very true is there is a refusal to acknowledge racial progress in, in many of these social justice movements and acknowledging that there exists an influential upper middle class uh, layer of African-American society would entail acknowledging an element of racial progress from the 50s and 60s onwards. Um, but also because there is this awkward truth, as you've just said, that um, the fallout from the George Floyd atrocity and from the riots of 2020 did seem to me to serve the class interests of the black PMC, the black professional managerial class, and also the cultural interests of the boss class more broadly, the kind of capitalist class who are able to make these gestures and, and virtue signal without making any kind of radical economic change. So um, those points are, are very well made in your book. I, I, I do want to go back a few years before the George Floyd issue um, to another thing that you write about in the book. Well, a couple of things. You talk about the Occupy movement of 2011 on Wall Street, famously in New York. There was also an Occupy St. Paul's here in London, um, where they occupied outside St. Paul's Cathedral, which I have to tell you was one of the most annoying protests of my life. Uh, they stank out the whole of um, St. Paul's Cathedral uh, for weeks on end. Um, and you also talk, of course, about the um, anti-war protests in relation to Iraq earlier on, and you were an organiser in some of those anti-war gatherings and anti-war protests. I want to ask you about those two events in particular, because as you say in the book, I think they are quite indicative of where the American left was going. I would also say where the British left was going as well. So if we look at Occupy Wall Street first, one of the points you make in the book was it's very striking that they refused to issue demands. And in fact, they thought that making demands, having a list of demands would be too, I don't know, too judgmental, too hegemonic, too, you know, too much of a stiff, old fashioned thing to do. And instead, they were just kind of, I guess, making a point, making a colorful, noisy point in public. What do you think that moment, that that anti-capitalist moment that we saw in the early 2010s, what did that tell us about where the left was going, do you think? 
Well, I think that uh, it, a, a sort of core point was that uh, sort of just the relationship to Barack Obama. I mean, it's really important to say um, uh, George W. Bush was the worst president of my lifetime, and it's not particularly close. Uh, and uh, his immensely destructive and incredibly enervating and just terribly depressing presidency, um, he became immensely unpopular. He became unpopular even among his own party, which is all incredible because he had uh, like 90 plus percent approval rating immediately after 9-11. Um, uh, people were so desperate to believe, right, in the Barack Obama story uh, because – it came after immediately after Bush, who was you know a monster, and Obama uh, uh, ran on a platform of hope and change. Now, some people will tell you these days that oh, he never promised to be a radical; he was always a sort of incrementalist. Um, whether or not that's true, he he ran on a platform designed to inspire sort of belief in the in the power of hope and the sweeping change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then he got into uh, office. Uh, as the um, financial crisis was exploding all around us. Uh, and it immediately became clear that uh, he had extremely limited sort of ambitions for what he was going to do in office. And in particular, the sort of structural problems that had created the financial crisis and then the terrible recession that uh, followed after it, an employment depression, um, that he was not going to do anything really to, to address those. Uh, aside from, you know, low interest rates, um, all of the effort uh, uh, to address the financial crisis and the recession was sort of oriented towards making sure very large banks did not go bankrupt uh, because of, you know, systemic risk or whatever they, or whatever they called it. In, in particular, they, they did not help any uh, mortgage holders keep their houses. Uh, and it was and remains an um, incredibly ugly thing that uh, banks that are worth, in, you know, in the hundreds of billions of dollars who have assets in the trillions of dollars um, were getting bailed out by the federal government, whereas people who now found themselves underwater on their mortgages got nothing. Um, Occupy was a uh, sort of... Uh, understandable just sort of barbaric yell into the into the void like this sucks the new guy's not that much better than the old guy and no one's coming to help us um i think occupy was it's i mean you can't even call it a failure because as you said they didn't ask for anything right so it's like i i don't I, i wouldn't even know the uh the sort of terms on which to call it a success or a failure i certainly Nothing much happened because of Occupy. However, I do think that it demonstrated that there was a left of liberal class that was growing because of resentment over the state of the economy and of the labor market. Uh, It's important to say that, um, you know, a core element of what got Occupy going was members of the upwardly mobile sort of, you know, destined to be PMC class were terribly angry that they didn't get the jobs that they thought that they were entitled to after they graduated from NYU or Yale or whatever. Right. Um, and, uh, I mean, you can go back and find the essays where people just said, I didn't get the internship I wanted. I'm going to take the streets and talk about about why capitalism is bad. Um, I am, I'm actually fine with that. Right. Like if, if the, if the sort of affluent upper upwardly mobile class gets class consciousness just because, things didn't work out for them the way that they thought they were. If that pushes them in a direction where they're fighting for actual lefty change, that's fine. Um, But it was a signal, right, that um, everything that followed was going to come from the top 20% most educated strata of American life. I mean, to a remarkably remarkable degree, uh, Black Lives Matter and Me Too and the Bernie Sanders movement and Occupy um, were all – uh, examples of um, social movements where all of their energy and organizing momentum came from the most educated strata in our society. So uh, one thing I wanted to ask you on Occupy and I guess on the anti-Iraq war movement too, do you think there was, a, there was an element where one of the problems was the moralization of the critique of capitalism and the moralization of the critique of imperialism in in the case of the Iraq war. 
I don't mean to um, be dismissive of morality. I think morality has a very important role to play in left politics and politics more broadly. Um, but I mean moralism. So, for example, I was thinking this when I was reading Naomi Klein's um, interesting new book, Doppelganger, where she talks about always being confused for Naomi Wolf. And what's interesting about the book is that um, she talks about the fact that both she and Wolf were at Occupy Wall Street in 2011. So they were on the same team then. They were on that same team of saying, you know, as you say, a kind of barbaric yelp against um, the unfair economic system and the failures of the Obama administration. They were on the same team, but Klein went that way and into the kind of, you know, shock doctrine uh, critique, uh, although that came earlier. And Wolf went that way into the kind of right wing conspiracism, um, anti vax lunacy um but it was interesting that they both had that same kind of starting point and then it, it did seem to me that the anti-globalization movement and the occupy movement as well seemed to offer a critique of capitalism that was based less on a kind of structural analysis of the uh, social relations that pertain under the capitalist system and more was about these vulgar businessmen you know, the red braces wearing yuppies, as we call them in London, or I don't know what you call them in uh, America, you know, making all their money, not giving a shit about anyone else. And and there were echoes of that, I think, in the 2003 movement against the Iraq war as well. And, and you know, that's a kind of act of apocalyptic barbarism that deserved the most strenuous opposition, in my view. But what we had in Britain was a movement whose rallying cry was not in my name. So it was that very personal response to the Iraq war. And, and it, literally, the, the two million strong uh, protest in Hyde Park, which is the largest protest we've ever had in this country's history, um, the banner waved by everyone was not in my name. So absolving themselves of personal responsibility for an act of barbarism rather than putting forward a, a, a really coherent political critique of um, such an imperialist action. So do you think those two events in, in the 2000s and the early 2010s were indicative of that shift you've talked about away from a structural understanding of our society towards a kind of personal reaction and sometimes a revulsion with what happens in our society? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Iraq war movement is just um, was just truly sui generis for a few reasons. Um, it is it is genuinely unusual for a democratic country to invade another without an immediate causeless belly, right? Like the, the, it was so bizarre, um, the rationale that was given. Um, it was also the case that, um, 9-11 sort of scrambled American politics, uh, the uh, sort of I've been involved in a ton of different political organizations and movements and, and events. And the Iraq war stuff is the only one that I would say did not have a class character. Uh, it, did, it did not have a clear sort of dominance by the affluent and the educated in terms of like who was pushing it. Um, and it also had this weird uh, I mean, it was all driven by sort of this bizarre post 9-11 moment. And uh, one of the things that I've always felt is that, you know, um, so many people, including so many Democrats in Washington, went along with it because they felt like the, they'd be punished by the American people if they didn't. But my impression was also that the American people were just were sort of doing like going along with it because they felt like they had to. I mean, one of the, one of the things that, you you know, I was forever like. Um, you know, getting permits or um, like uh, uh, renting uh, PA systems or whatever for events. So just doing a lot of sort of boring scut work for uh, stuff back then. And I can't tell you how many times I would go to like some random like, uh, you know, rent, go rent a pot, porta potties for some from somebody. And they would sort of say under their voice, like, you know, I think you're so right. I don't know why we're over there. There, there was a, such a bizarre melange of like conflicting impulses and things going on. I will say that um, sectarianism is as old as left politics is. And you can definitely see that in the, the 60s and 70s. Um, I did sort of see in real time a deepening sort of uh, reliance on identity as sort of the crux through which people were arguing. So uh, where I was anyway, in Connecticut, where I was organizing, uh, the, big, the big over like umbrella organization was called Cut Up uh, CT United for Peace. And um, 
the the sort of Israel-Palestine question kept coming up. And is that going to divide us? Um, West Hartford is a place in Connecticut that is extremely affluent. It's also very, very liberal. Um, it's also very Jewish. And um, there was this constant sort of debate, are we going to lose West Hartford and everything that that means? You know, um, that sort of thing uh, definitely only intensified as time went on. Um, I would say, though, that... Um, both Occupy and the Iraq War movement were interesting in that um, Occupy failed because it had no demands, and Iraq had very specific demands that could not be met, right? And uh, I think that um, both of those two things were also sort of true in the 2020 moment, meaning to the degree that there were specific demands, they were like to fund the police, which we were never going to get. And otherwise, there was very vague talk about like social justice that wasn't connected to sort of specific demands. And I think, as I as I suggest in the book, and I think, I think anyone who's organized knows, right, like um, whether you have any chance of winning or not depends entirely on what your demands are. And, um, and that in and of itself is uh, an element that I think is often gone wrong in the modern sort of activist left, because, again, um, the activist left is made up of a class of people for whom there's just very little direct sort of skin in the game with politics, right? The things that they talk about tend not to have a great deal of purchase in their own life because of their, you know, sort of remove uh, things to their economic security. Uh, but formulating demands at the heart of everything. And unfortunately, that didn't go well for us in 2020. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book, it's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable, and I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology, and it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now, on with the show. So uh, I want to talk about class now a little bit with you. Um, as you know, Britain is a pretty class-obsessed country, even even now, um, uh, years after the miners' strike and years after the fall of the Soviet Union and, and all, all of that stuff, we still talk about class quite a lot, far more than Americans, I think. Um, but uh, you have y your book, your critique of these new social movements and your analysis of the failures of the left and the sectarianism of the left and, and all those things that you do in your book leads up to a chapter that is titled uh, why is class first? And I want to ask you about that. Um, you make this really interesting point, which I've experienced as well, and I know lots of people here in the UK have experienced, where you say that it's become a pejorative term to refer to someone like you as a class-first leftist. Um, we have a similar dynamic here in Britain where anyone who talks about class, I mean, sometimes they will just insinuate that you are racist. They will say, oh, you only care about white people, even though you never mention the word white once. You're, you're just talking about a class of people, not a race of people. Um, or they will refer to you as a class reductionist, um, a, a, a left wing reductionist or, or whatever term they want to throw at you. And by they, I mean left-wing voices. People on the left will say this. So um, to kick this off, let me just ask you why, let me put that question to you. Why is class first? Why do you insist on seeing that as uh, the most important element of this discussion? So I've said in the past that um, this, the whole sort of class first or class reductionist or identity first, race first, whatever, that that fight is a... Uh, a tactical argument that masquerades as an argument of values, meaning um, whether we address politics through class first or through race first or through whatever else first um, is a question about how to achieve ends, not about the ends themselves. Right. Um, if you say race is the only thing that matters to me, which, of course, nobody really does. But let's say we had somebody like that. Race is the only thing that matters to me. And all of politics has to run through race you're still fundamentally going to be talking an awful lot about economic issues because uh, the sharp tip of the spear of racial inequality 
is economics, right? Um, and if you talk about uh, class first stuff, you're inevitably going to be intersecting with race again because of the racial dynamics of, of the economy in the American public. So it's not really a question about like what do we value? It's about how do we get what we want to get? And the, the, the simple reality is um, there is a 70% majority in the American electorate that's white. So I think one thing that a lot of people, when they have this fight or when they talk about the idea that like the browning of America is going to give us a permanent majority, um, the, the, the electorate and the populace are very different in terms of their demographic makeup. Um, this is because of felon disenfranchisement. It's a disenfranchisement. It's because of uh, undocumented uh, or uh, or legal immigrants who are not allowed to vote, or you know, because they don't have citizenship, etc. The, the country is a lot browner than the, than the electorate is. But then again, there's also the fact that it's been well documented that um, sort of. White people without college degrees are disproportionately located in states that um, gives them a greater representation in the Senate, right? Like um, the simple fact of the matter is, is that in terms of pure electoral math, one white person in Ohio has a much more value for uh, in the Senate than one black person in California because of a lot of the stupid things about our system. Um, and so there's just there is no way to political victory, enduring political victory in this country that does not involve convincing a substantial portion of white people to get on board. Um, and while that the growth in white voters for the Democrats has been taking place for a long time, it's uh, almost universally concentrated. It is universally concentrated among the upper class, the upper class, the educated class. Um, there's still less than 40 percent of the people in the country have a college degree. So that portion of people is not that big. And finally, the number of people who are who have college degrees has finally started to level off. And there's an, an, an enrollment crunch going on right now. So it's just that, that that just approach just doesn't work from a math standpoint. What does work is saying, hey, look, you have economic problems. I have economic problems. We share interests in addressing those economic problems. Right. And we have to recognize that the other half of the equation, the people at the top, they share an economic interest. Right. The rich people know that, that uh, they, they don't want to pay higher taxes no matter what their race is. Right. Um, and so, you know, we have to band together in a way that reflects our shared economic values. If that leads to greater sort of, you know, harmony between the races or whatever other group, and that's great. But politics is the art of self-interest, right? You know, Karl Marx said so, for the record. Uh, and um, so, you know, just the, the playing field, right, the addressable population is just so much larger than, you know, what you would believe if you went on Twitter and you listened to someone talking about how we've got to get out there and march for black bodies, People don't know what that is, okay? What they do know is that, like, for example, the child tax credit, which was briefly expanded, was, is a great program. That uh, is race neutral, so it helps everybody. Lots of poor white kids would do better with that program. But it's also heavily uh, anti-racist because uh, of the distribution of poverty in the black community. And so that's a win-win on both sides. That's how you do politics. Um, I wanted to ask you about the treatment of class as an identity. Um, now, there are unquestionably elements of being a working class person that pertain to one's identity. You know, your, your identity as someone who comes from a working class background, as someone who has certain cultural experiences, that, that's very true. But it seems to me that on both the sections of the populist right and also much of the identitarian left, there is this urge, this instinct to reduce class to an identity. So sections of the populist right will say, look at these aggrieved uh, working class people in the Rust Belt in the American case or, or the left behind parts of Northern England in, in the British case. Um, you know, we've got to really give them a voice, you know, help them express themselves, help them get their kind of concerns across. So it's kind of reduces class from a social relation to simply an identity complaint, uh, an ident a feeling of, of, of cultural insecurity and nothing else. And then on the identitarian left, one thing I find interesting and, and also worrying is their reduction of class to an intersection with other identities. So they only ever speak about class in the sense that it intersects with race or intersects with sex or intersects with gender. Uh, the, the issue I have there of 
is that, of course, class is distinct to all of those things because class is, is not an identity. It's a social relation and it's a social relation that defines uh, how much power you have in society, whether you're at the top, whether you're at the bottom uh, and so on. And of course, the revolutionary position, as you will well know, is not to preserve the working class identity, but in many ways to destroy the working class identity and to um, uh, override the the very idea of being a member of the working class and to become something very, very different. So do you think identity politics is at root hostile, innately, I suppose, even if not explicitly, to class politics as we might have understood it in the past? I don't, I mean, I think that like to, to say that it was it's innately hostile would be to assume that the people who practice identity politics know what they're doing in a certain sense. So, meaning, I think that when, I think that when particularly younger people want, like, if you go to academic conferences, then they'll have these breakout sessions that are black only or Muslim only or disabled only. Um, and more and more often now they have like, you know, um, you know, like it came from poverty only or like, you know, like they have these class sort of based sessions like that exactly the way that you're talking about. Um, I think that their heart is in the right place. Right. I don't, I don't think that they're doing that to sort of, uh, intentionally misunderstand what class is. I think they just don't know a better, any other way to sort of consider political difference than through that lens, right? In other words, like to them, when you take something seriously, you assign it an identity category so that it has the full protections of identity politics, right? As you suggest, that's not a good idea when it comes to class for a lot of reasons, uh, for the reason that you just said, but also, you know, I'm forever telling people that College campuses are terrible places to do activism. It's not that you shouldn't do activism at college campuses. I spent my whole four years doing that. But that um, they can't be like a prime sort of center of political activism, of left political activism. And one of the reasons why is because the populations are completely transitory. So you sort of look at the progress of these groups and in any indi individual given year, they might seem like they're getting something done. And then, oh, it's spring break, Right. Nothing's happening. And then, oh, it's it's the end of the year. Now our like three most dedicated organizers have just graduated. Oh, now are we, you know, so there's there's lots of times where these groups are like sort of super active and doing a lot of stuff. And then they just stop because they graduate the, uh, the people that sort of made the thing happen. It's the same issue with sort of treating class as a race. Class is transitory, right? Like classes, you know, um, uh, something that changes over the course of your life. And uh it's just not, you know, sort of meaningful to want to assign yourself a class identi identity while at the same time having the very reasonable goal of like, you know, getting richer as you age. And so I just think that that's just like it's it's a mistake, but it's a mistake that's born from um, that these kids just don't know what politics is in a different frame than identity politics. That's well put. OK, um, Freddie, I've just got a couple more questions for you. I just want to one more thing on class. Um, you have this very powerful section in the book where you talk about how there is a tendency among sections of the new social justice movement, especially, I guess we might call them upper class liberals. I don't know if that's the right term in the American context, but there is a tendency among those sections to look down upon the working class as a problem. So they're often perceived to be racist and low information is the fashionable term, which really means, you know, dumb. Um, and we see an a very similar dynamic in the UK, particularly post Brexit, after the vote for Brexit. Um, every uh, analysis essentially shows that the more working class you are, the more likely you were to have voted for Brexit. So there was this reaction from the kind of guardians of correct thinking and literally the guardian in, in this instance to look upon those sections of society as stupid ill-educated, racist, xenophobic, and so on. And uh, this new term came into use, which was gammon, to refer to red-faced working-class men of, of middle age. And of course, gammon means pig, and it really brought to mind Edmund Burke's attack on uh, the, the swinish multitude who were ask, arguing for their democratic rights in the late 1700s and early 1800s. So um, 
there is this uh, revulsion sometimes from sections of the social justice movement towards working class people. And I wanted to ask you on that, is that a cultural thing merely? Is it simply that these people don't understand working class people, may never have encountered many working class people? Or or is there something a bit more structural? Is it that the, this new social justice movement has new class interests of its own which run directly counter in some instances to the class interests of working people. How, how do you understand that tension between those sections? So there's a um, sort of observation that you sometimes hear from uh, Indian Americans, people in the like South Asian diaspora, which is, um, you know, the, the people who, who come from India to the United States tend to be um, from the absolute like, highest educated slice of Indian life, and they tend to be politically very liberal compared to their home country. And um, they also tend to have a very low opinion of the caste system relative to the average Indian person in India. Um, but people have said that they then move into, uh, you know, Indian American commentators have said they then move into professions in the United States, which are very hierarchical and in which they essentially rebuild the case system, right? So in other words, they, they're very sort of um, uh, progressive and uh, uh, sort of in mind, but like their their habit as beings is to sort of occupy a sort of hierarchical system. And I think it's very similar uh, among British liberalism. I just think that there's a, you know, a, a sort of conscious understanding that uh, we are to reject the, you know, the literal sort of aristocratic sort of like landed gentry hierarchy that used to exist, but there's also a deep sort of cultural memory of occupying those places. And as many people have argued, um, the sort of virtue signaling that, that liberals do is often a way to sort of occupy that sort of thing. You, you create an aristocracy of virtue rather than of, you know, of whatever. I mean, look, um, it would be very convenient to say that, um, you know, prior to UKIP, prior to the betrayals of, uh, the EU and globalization, et cetera, the North was all hearty left, left wing, uh, uh, progressive union men. Right. And that like, this was, then, you know, globalization made what, however many of them are racist, racist, and you kept seduced them. Um, there's no doubt that there was some, you know, nationalist, uh, sentiment, uh, among the sort of people who hated Thatcher and and the miners and the unionists and the people who, who attacked uh, who attacked Thatcher during that period, but like that's not really the question, right? Like the, like the question is is what is your level of political engagement doing to sever relationships that you don't like? In the United States, there is a constant obsession with proving that Donald Trump's voters are just racist, and. You have all these wonks and commentators who sort of say, hey, look, the, if you look at the exit polling, the people who scored highest in racial resentment all voted for Trump. Ergo, his election was was provoked by racism. Um, and, the, you know, the, my response would be sort of like, let's say that that's true. Right. Like, so what? Right. Like, if it is the case that racism brought someone to the White House then that means that we have a lot of work to do, doesn't it? Right? Like the 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 it's it, it's never clear to me like what the point is beyond sort of saying oh the other side is bad, but it's our job as politically motivated people, right, to do a better job. If it's true that every single Donald Trump voter is incorrigibly racist, then we need to do a better job of convincing them to be otherwise, right? And it's just like there's. The, there's a fatalism inherent to the sort of bigot uh, designation that doesn't reflect that like, OK, well, if they have enough people to pass Brexit or if they have enough people to elect Donald Trump, then we have then it's our problem to sort of solve that anyway. Right. Yeah. And and yes, exactly. And there's an, another element of this is is the constant obscuring of real power relations, which is something that you talk about and you write about in the book. And that was incredibly clear during the Brexit fallout, where you had very influential elites, largely in London, including the business class, um, treating working class Northerners, working class Welsh people, the people who, who tended to vote for Brexit, treating them as the kind of all powerful usurpers of the social order. 
which is just completely false. And you, when you think about what the European Union did to the working classes of Greece and the working classes of Italy and the attacks it launched upon the voting rights of people in France and the Netherlands, and you, I don't want to rehash the whole thing, but the EU is a notoriously neoliberal club. It's a capitalist club. And the idea that uh, you know, the ill-educated voters of Britain have ruined everything seems to me to be incredibly fanciful. Um, okay, I have one more question for you, which is really about the future and your levels of pessimism versus your levels of optimism. Because one of the things you try and do in the book is not only um, analyse what's happening and the problems uh, in relation to what's happening, but also to start pointing towards a politics that is properly um, progressive. I don't know if progressive is, is a bad word in the US, but it's generally a good word in the UK. Properly progressive, interested in the, the concerns of working people, the concerns of the majority, a kind of left-wing politics that is more responsive and interesting and forward-looking. Um, and I, I, I wanted to ask you what you think that would involve, because one of the things that has struck me is that there is this growing tendency to be ostentatiously anti-woke. And I sometimes find myself being slightly sucked into that. I have to kind of pull back a bit, you know, both on the right and the left. You know, there are now new left movements that are, um, I, get, I think in the US you have the dirtbag left. In the UK we have sections of the left which are uh, kind of, you know, we're super anti-woke, but they don't really believe in very much of substance. It's kind of quite reactive, quite responsive and quite dismissive um, and quite nihilistic, in, in fact, sometimes. So how do you cut through all of that stuff to put forward a politics that is positive and interesting and capable of grabbing people's attention? Yeah, I mean, for me, I just always try to, to, to maintain the exact same position over time and to not allow where I am in the cultural war of the time to uh, dictate my engagement, right? Like, um, look, I, 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 I am often frequently known as like an anti-woke writer. Um, I'm easily in the top 10% most woke Americans, right? Like if you, if you actually look at like the political, the media and political opinion in the United States um, on issue after issue, right? Like I, I sort of am occupying sort of like the woke zone, um, I just have it's just, the, the problems is like, like if I'm in the top 10 percent, the conversation in media is dominated by the top one percent most book. Right. Like that there's that uh, there's such an extreme dedication to a particular vision of identity politics in our media that I look, uh, you know, conservative by sort of in, in relief. Um, as far as optimism and pessimism goes, like, you know, my response is always just to say that, like, I'm not going to I'm not planning on dying anytime soon. So let's do a better job tomorrow than we did yesterday. Um, you know, uh, <clears throat> pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Right. Like there's, there's just you, you really like the options are to go apolitical or to accept a kind of like um, uh, unshakable, pragmatic refusal to sort of give up. Right. Because um, things are going to get worse in some ways. But they're going to get better in other ways. And all you can do is keep going. Freddie, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. you for listening to the brendan o'neill show we'll be back with another guest and more discussion don't forget to subscribe and in the meantime keep reading spiked at www.spiked-online.com